80-20 has a, a great deal to do with chaos theory and fractals. That's all he said. Well, I knew what that was. I had fractals on my computer screen and, and I knew what they were and I had books about them and I knew how to generate them and I knew kind of the, the, the general idea of chaos theory and the butterfly effect and patterns within patterns. And as soon as Richard said that, I'm like, whoa, it was like a, it was like a little micro LSD trip all of a sudden. It was like, wait a minute. Structured. Today, I'm excited that we have Perry Marshall. Now, Perry Marshall, I wasn't familiar with, but it turns out I'm late to the game because every bit of research, I started digging, and I found out more, and I digged, and I found out more. And ironically, Perry Marshall wrote the 80-20 Sales and Marketing Guide, and it's essentially a breakdown of the Pareto Principle, and we're going to deep dive it more. And of course, in the Pareto Principle, 20% affects 80% of everything around them. Well, it turns out Perry may be inside of the 20%, and I just completely was blind to him. How are you doing today, Perry? I'm great. I'm glad to be here. It's a cold winter day in Chicago, and it's a Friday, and it's sunny, and well, that's that's better than it's been for the last couple of weeks. So, uh, And we're going to have a smoking hot conversation, I am quite certain. <laughs> Let's hope so. Well, I'll start off by asking the dullest, boring question possible. But you have sales and marketing in the title of your book. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, marketers don't want to acknowledge sales, and sales <laughs> don't want to acknowledge marketers. So are you trying to force a wedding here? <laughs> it's a shotgun wedding, man. We're, uh, we're marching them down the aisle. We're going to make them do it whether they want to or not. Well... You know, it's kind of funny because, you know, marketers and salespeople are two different animals. Um, but the fact is, is that Pareto rules both of those worlds uh, with an iron fist. And um, and I actually found that 80-20, because it's a fundamental fractal law of nature and not merely a business rule of thumb, it's actually the most efficient way to explain why anything in marketing or sales works that does work. You know, you can, you could open up any negotiation book, sales book, advertising book, and whatever it's telling you is the most effective way to do something. There's an 80, 20 that explains why that is. And so, um, you know, this is the book that I desperately wish that I'd had when I was uh, 26 years old, got laid off from my engineering job and ended up going into sales when my wife was three months pregnant. And I was thrown into the alligator pit, forced to swim as a young sales guy. So, you know, um, why, why sales? I mean, seriously, because I taught engineers at the University of Arizona extended you because, well, they couldn't get work with their degree. I had to teach them Cisco in 2001. <laughs> Why would you go into sales? It seems anathema to an engineering mind. Well, I had already been floundering around as a multi-level marketing guy before that, mm -hmm. and I wasn't really successful at it, but I, I had done it enough to figure out that you could accomplish more in one conversation with the right person than an engineer could accomplish with six months of work. Hmm. And, um, you know, by, by getting a decision to get made or getting a purchase order to get issued or whatever, it, it could create work for a hundred engineers. Um, also the, the simple fact was I wanted my wife to stay home from work and, in my branch of engineering, you couldn't really make enough money for your wife to stay home. You could make almost enough money. And so I, uh, but in sales, there's really no upper limit. And so, and, and the third reason was I cast about for engineering jobs and I just didn't find one. Uh, 
and I found a sales job fairly easily, which, well, you might kind of be able to figure out why. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and so, you know, I just, uh, I had my back up against the wall and I had to make my life work and, and I, I figured that would probably be the strategy. And, and I really struggled for quite a while for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I struggled because I was frankly selling the wrong kind of product. Um, the, uh, the cool products that we were selling, we were too early in the market and it was in the bleeding early adopter stage. And that was extremely painful learning curve. Um, and I had no, there was no marketing muscle behind me. It was like me in a manufacturer's directory, like here, go talk to these people. And so I really was at a significant disadvantage, but I didn't understand, you know, I was young, I was optimistic. I was, you know, I was going to catch Moby Dick and bring the tartar sauce (laughs) and everything, you know? And, and, um, idealistic. And so, yeah, idealistic. And I, I, I mean, I just had all these misconceptions. I didn't know what I didn't know. I just didn't. And wow, that's, that's a recipe for bologna <laughs> sandwiches and ramen soup. So there you it's go. Interesting. You bring that up because uh, it sort of popped in my mind. I've been in the corporate world forever. I'm a drone, but back in the nineties, I got certified using the product Novell, which is a far superior networking product for connecting networks, computers, things like that. Ironically, to this day, NDS, Novell Directory Services, is better than Microsoft's Active Directory, always has been. And the 90s version is better than current Active Directory. Wow. Now, what you brought up the fact that a salesperson could um, push something through better than an engineer yeah. I thought about it because in the late 90s, early 80s, Novell was being driven out of business by Microsoft and they had the better product. And it turns out I was talking to somebody about it and they said that Novell was selling the plumbing and Microsoft was selling the hot tubs. Hmm. So, yes, Novell had better plumbing, better efficiency, everything else. But Microsoft said, here's this beautiful hot tub. Do you have Outlook at home? You can have Outlook at work. Well, and they they had their user they had the advantage of their installed base and um the fact that they made Outlook and they were leveraging their various properties, you know, they were the chess queen and the rook and the bishop were all working together and uh yeah, so you know, it's astonishing how often the better product doesn't win and engineers just resent it. They, they never learn how to overcome it. Like, Hey, you know, the game doesn't work the way that you want it to the way the game doesn't work the way that you think it does. So you need to learn a different set of rules and play a different game and then, and then you can win. And so, yeah, I, I, I really struggled in that job and, over and over and over, I kept coming up with these really promising big deals, and then they would get squashed by something. Like, I remember this one day, um, this company was, they were getting ready to put in a really nice order of these. They were going to switch their circuit boards over to this other kind of circuit board, and I had landed on the opportunity at the right time, and I take them up to the factory, and they say, well, yeah, show us the engineering department. And the guy says, oh, well, we just sold the engineering department last week, but we have this independent contractor here. He's going to do the engineering instead. And like the whole meeting just went and it turned into a twisted pile of burnt wreckage, like right in front of me. And we drove home like this ain't never going to happen. And the, the people wouldn't even return my calls after that. And this would happen over and over again. After two years, I got fired from that job uh, because we just couldn't make it work uh, despite all of these redoubling our efforts and everything. And, and, and I got a, I got a different job that had quite a few things in common, but if, but, some of the disadvantages had gotten switched to advantages. And, and on top of that, they had a website 
And there weren't that many companies with websites in 1997. And so I kind of had free hand to experiment with that and start generating leads for a business to business company online. And, um, and that was a major breakthrough. And, and that was combined with about six months before that, I had discovered direct marketing in the whole world of like Dan Kennedy and, and all, you know, these kind of people. And, um, and when you put all that together, you really had a recipe for something new and it, and it started to work. And I got to tell you, like when I started actually having customers want to talk to me, (laughs) okay, like seriously, just that. And I started actually earning enough money to not go deeper and deeper in debt. Oh my goodness. It was like better than any therapy. Uh, it was just, wow. So, um, yeah, you know, we were scraping the guardrails for a while, man. At what point did you come across the 80, 20 principle? That was actually about five years later. Um, I, I had at this point, we had grown that business, sold it to a public company. I got stock options. I left the company, started my own consulting firm, which I had now been doing for a year and a half. And, uh, a friend said, you have to read this book by Richard Koch, the 80, 20 principle. And I started reading it and I got to page 14 and Richard never went into any depth about this. He just mentioned in one paragraph in the book, he goes, 80-20 has a a great deal to do with chaos theory and fractals. That's all he said. Well, I knew what that was. I had fractals on my computer screen and, and I knew what they were and I had books about them and I knew how to generate them and I knew kind of the the, the general idea of chaos theory and the butterfly effect and patterns within patterns. And as soon as Richard said that, I'm like, whoa, it was like a, <laughs> it was like a little micro LSD trip all of a sudden. It was like, wait a minute. That means probably there's an 80-20 inside every 80-20. And then there's another one and another one and another one, because that's how, that's how chaos works. Like, Like if you're walking on dry ground and there's a crack, there's a crack coming off of the crack and there's another crack coming off of that crack. And then there's another one. It's like tree branches. And I'm like, Hey, that means 80, 20 would work like that. That means 80, 20 is fractal. So it means there's levers inside of levers inside of levers. I could suddenly see how there was this explosive multiplication effect. And I also, pretty much instantly realized this is a fundamental law of cause and effect. This isn't just a like business rule of thumb. This is everywhere because, because chaos theory is everywhere. Fractals are everywhere. Um, and, and oh my word. And so I, I, I could suddenly see the implications of this. I was sitting in a coffee shop and I jumped up and I got in my car and I drove home And an hour later, I've got these papers scattered all over the floor. I have a calculator. I'm laying in the floor and I'm going through all these numbers because I was looking for the fractal patterns of 80-20 inside my own business. And they were already evident. I'd been in business for a year and a half. I had like two or three clients. I was mailing out free CDs to a bunch of people. I had sold some information products, a, a pretty small number. But it was like, hey, I can actually like make a little pyramid. And it's like, well, you know, I've sold, um, you know, I've sold 20 months of $10,000 consulting and I've sold, you know, 200 uh, copies of a thousand dollar thing. And I've, and it was like, oh my goodness, like, and I was just freaking out. And my wife comes home and she's like, what happened to you? Like she could tell that I was in some weird (laughs) brainstorm. And I'm like, I I think I just figured out one of the secrets of the universe here. And I started using it in all of my strategic thinking about marketing. Google AdWords was brand new at that time. It had been around one year 
and I was already using it. And all of a sudden it was like the way that you optimize Google AdWords is you do an 80, 20 and you don't optimize you, you pretty much ignore 80% or delete it or pause it or shut it off. And you just, can we dissect that okay. a little bit? Because you've mentioned it before and I'm, I definitely want to get a better idea. Are you essentially saying that you throw out what you perceive as these are good ideas or are good combinations that may work and then see how the market reacts and then take the top 20% of that spread it out again? Yeah. So, so let me, let me tell you a story. Um, and then I'll orient all of my explanation around the story. So I've got this friend, John Paul Mendoza, and he was 17 years old when he dropped out of high school in Denver, hitchhiked to Las Vegas and became a professional gambler, which of course his mother was very excited about. And this is, this is what he did. And after about three weeks of playing poker in Las Vegas, like living by his wits, he's like, dang, this is a little harder than I thought it was going to be. And he goes to a gambling bookstore and he bumps into this guy who runs a professional gambling ring and they start talking. And he asks the guy, see, do you think you could teach me what you do? And he goes, for a percentage of your winnings, I could teach you what I do. And so they agree like, okay, that sounds like a good deal. So they shake on it. Jump in the Jeep, John. We're going for a ride. So they get in the Jeep and John goes, all right, how do I win more poker games? And Rob says, the way you win more poker games is you play with people who are going to lose. Those people are called marks and you have to identify the marks. You don't want to play with other professional poker players like yourself. And he goes, so where do I find the marks? And he goes, here, I'll show you. And he pulls into a parking lot and takes him into a strip club. And there's women and there's booze and there's bikers and there's all these people and there's loud rock music. And, you know, there's, shall we say, lots of distractions in this room. <laughs> and Rob always carried a sawed-off shotgun everywhere he went in his jacket. And he pulls the sawed-off shotgun out of his jacket and he holds it under the table. And he goes, watch this. And he, he opens the chamber and then he snaps it shut. So it goes, racks it. Yeah. he racks the shotgun. And a few people in this club with all the rock and roll and distractions, a few people look around and they're like, hey, who made that noise? And, uh, of course, most people are oblivious. And the club owner comes over to the table and he goes, hey, what's going on over here? <laughs> Don't worry about us. Just teaching the lad a lesson. We're not going to cause any trouble. He goes, John. Did you see those dangerous looking biker dudes who turned around when they heard that noise? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, don't play poker with them. They're not marks. Play poker with everybody else. Okay, that's racking the shotgun. Okay. And everything you do in marketing is rack the shotgun. So some people type in Oklahoma City plumber on Google and most people don't. That's rack the shotgun. Some people click on your plumbing ad and some people don't. That's rack the shotgun. Some people call the phone number when they get to the website. Some people don't. Some people sign up for the webinar. Some people don't. Some people buy. Some people don't. Some people buy the super deluxe version and some people don't. All of those are racking the shotgun. And what you'll find is all of those are also generally 80-20 generally at every step, you're going to get 20% of the people say yes, 80% of the people say no, and you're going to get this huge disproportional cause and effect. And this is in everything in business just about. It's in it's in the profitability of certain products. It's in the sales volume of certain products. It's in your customer support tickets. It's 80% of the dirt is on 20% of the carpet because 80% of the footsteps are in 80% of the room. And, and your family spends 80% of its time in 20% of the rooms in your house. Okay. Sure. And it goes on and on. And so, and so everything like in a Google campaign, all the columns are 80, 20. If you sort a column from top to bottom, of the juice is in the top 20% of the column. It's usually even more extreme than that. You, 
you mentioned earlier, maybe before the interview about like Pareto is eating everything. Yeah, well, actually in a Google account, it's probably more like 90-10. 90% of the juice is in 10% of the keywords or even 5%. Uh, Everything is extremely unequal. So if you treat everything as equal, you're hosed. You are in serious trouble if you treat all the customers equal, all the salespeople equally, all the products equally, all your keywords equally, all your landing page. You will die. You will die. You have to pick a small percentage which generating a huge disproportionate um, amount of your response. And all your optimization goes on that. I guess the point I was missing is a, I understand the racking of the shotgun and everything, especially from the book. Um, point zero, as in I am running this business, fill in the blank. I am clueless. I haven't done mm. anything. How do I get to the point that I'm actually able to select the 80, 20 levers? Okay. So that's the, okay. So the element. first thing you need to do is, is you need to find somebody who already racked the shotgun at their expense. So you don't have to. Okay. In other words, you, you can't start just cold. So, you need to, so there's no rule that says you have to rack the shotgun. There are shotguns being racked everywhere in the world all the time. Like all of the advertising platforms like Google and Facebook are constantly sorting people into who's the buyers and who's the non-buyers all the time. Uh, There's all kinds of people with mailing lists and email lists and new people are coming onto those lists. So you, you buy a list. You, you, you don't, you don't just like stand on a street corner and talk to strangers. You go speak at a seminar. Okay. You get on somebody's webinar. Um, you buy highly targeted traffic on Google or Facebook instead of just buying any old traffic. Um, you don't just like randomly call numbers in the phone book. You call people who are demographically and psychographically like we know they buy these sorts of things already. You've, you've, you've got to eliminate the 80% before you do anything. And that's that's literally the first thing. So maybe a competitor, I think you told a tale one time of um, how you would go around to sell a product and everywhere you went, there was a stupid book (laughs) that haunted your dreams. Yes. Yes. And, and yeah, one of my competitors wrote a book and it was a self-published book. Okay. It wasn't really fancy. I could have written that book, but they wrote that book. And then they advertised it. It was a lead generation. It was in the magazines. They're handing out at trade shows. And I would go see these people. And I would be doing this missionary work trying to explain this new technology. And I would see that book sitting on their desk. I mean, I don't even think they they didn't put it there so I would see it. It was just there. Okay. And they were ahead of me. They were kicking my ass. (laughs) Well, but part of the reason they were kicking my ass is I, I didn't really have that good of a product, but, oh, but okay. But here's an example of then racking the shotgun. I switched jobs. I'm selling the same technology, but I'm selling a different component of the system. And then I became friends with them. I wasn't directly competing with Mm -hmm. them. And I started recruiting all of their distributors to sell my product. Okay. Mm. And that's a, that's a, I, that's exactly what I did. And some of their distributors were very successful for us. And that is a, a perfect example of, okay, they racked a shotgun. They generated these leads. They also trained these reps and distributors to sell this kind of stuff. And now I'm adding my product line to their basket and I'm helping them get customers too. And so the national sales manager of that company, he was like, oh yeah, you know, if you need me to put in a good word for you with one of our reps or something, yeah, you know, just let me know. Here's a list. You go talk to all these guys. Yeah, we like you guys. And that was a very important alliance. Totally 80-20. Hmm. That actually, I just had a guest on recently, Christopher Lockhead, who um, he wrote the book, Play Bigger, and he's a proponent behind category mm. creation. His uh, whole philosophy is don't be better, be different. I agree. So what you're describing sounds kind of like down that line. And maybe is that a way to force 80-20 into your hands a, a little bit? Yes. Or, 
you mentioned sometimes you could be a late on a market or you could be too early for a market. Is that possibly a way to do it? You say, no, um, he keeps bringing up uh, the lady who created Spanx, how she could have created Girdle 2.0, but she said, no, this is Shapewear. Mm. It's something mm. different. And then, well, Spanx has well over 80% of that market. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Well, so so there's you got the issue of being too early to market and the issue of being too late. So let's start with being too late. Um, I think it's actually worse to be too late um, because first mover advantage is hugely important and it's way more important on the internet than it is in brick and mortar. Okay. Um, the, the 80, 20 of which companies actually make money and become valuable is it's the ones who are number one in a growing market. If you are number one in a growing market, then you will you will be the company that gets 80% of the profits. And the other 20% will have to be divided up among number two, number three, number four, number five. Okay? So... And you have the network effect moat too. Uh, yes, absolutely. Then, then you have the issue of, well, so... I want to be first in a market, but pioneers come home with arrows in their back. So how do you do that? Here's how you do it. <laughs> Here's how you do it. You cart, you, you take an existing market that already has customers and vendors and activity and you carve off a slice of that market that no one is addressing. What is the unmet need? Every market has an unmet need. Yeah, these vendors are great. They're doing this, they're doing that, they're doing the other thing. But nobody is doing this, and I have a bleeding neck. I need that really bad. And then you're the first to do that, and you crown yourself the king of that sub-niche, and you even name the sub-niche, okay? So if you can't be Coke, don't be Pepsi, be 7-Up. And if you can't be 7-Up, mm. be Dr. Pepper, Dr. Pepper. But, <laughs> but don't be Sierra Mist, right? okay? really, really important. And so, so getting this right, it's about, it's about getting a hungry market when they want something and they know they want something. They're telling you they want something, but nobody is providing it. And then you step in and you, you build an entire identity around that unmet need. And now the race is on. That could be tricky too, though, especially if you have to educate the market. Like Elon Musk is in the news quite a bit. And what he did a couple of years ago, I probably five years ago now is he gave away all of his patents mm. and that's considered by many to be completely nuts, except how do you build an entire market and be the first mover in electrical cars when you have to build an infrastructure that's got to back it up? Well, that might've been smart because he was still number one, except then all of his competitors are validating what he's doing and he's just ahead. Right. And of course um, he raised a ton of, of capital with his publicity. He's a brilliant publicist. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I don't, he's so brilliant at, at publicity that I think a lot of people don't really realize how calculated he is. You know, I was, I was watching this interview that he did with Joe Rogan and he's talking about how <laughs> AI is going to take over the world. AI is not going to take over the world, but it plays to, no, it's, <laughs> Well, not not the way he says. The machines aren't going to wake up. No, but the automation is going to eat our lunch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But but he he was he was going beyond that. He was like he's talking about the singularity and like the machines are going to be smarter than the humans. No, they're not. No, they're not. That we're sex organs for the machines. <laughs> well, see the real <laughs> the real the machines are they don't have one ounce of consciousness or sentience. Here's the real issue, which he never talked about. The real issue is the fact that somebody is always pulling the strings at the top of the machine, okay? There's somebody running Amazon. There's somebody running Google. There's somebody running Facebook. There's somebody running Apple, okay? And the real issue is who is pulling the strings and what is their agenda and how trustworthy is that person? That's the issue. That's, that never came up once in that interview. So it was like total distraction. But to the point, Elon Musk, brilliant publicist. And so I think, uh, well, I, 
I, I haven't really studied it, but I, I think that giving away the patents was a publicity stunt. Okay. I thought it, I thought it was that for obviously the goodwill he would mm-hmm. get, but also it would be to get everybody to jump in and start building out infrastructure that which he desperately needed to get his cars yeah. out there. I mean, it's like, yeah, he's going to make a lot of cars. He's going to sell all the cars. Well, gee, it's a lot better if uh, you help build this. He's a guy who doesn't really believe in the government doing for him. Go figure. He's from South Africa. But um, you brought up a couple of good points in our little segue. This is called Unstructured for yes. a Reason. And Amazon and giant players and markets and people who are pulling the levers, as you saw it, do you think we may have a anti-competitive type of situation in the sense that Amazon, for example, people think of them, oh, they're just a retailer. They're super big and a you know badass retailer who's taken mm-hmm. over the world. However, they're missing something, and that's called S3, which is the fabric behind the cloud. They're the first mover advantage in that. And gee whiz, Amazon now sees all the data that's going to all the startups, and they can say, oh, that startup looks pretty. I will take that one. Oh, that one's not, eh, the data's not moving that much. We won't worry about that. Um, There is a case, and I'm going to extrapolate it because I don't know it that well, but there was a problem with the railroads and oil where they knew that they needed oil to get diesel, et cetera, to run the trains. So they decided to buy oil companies. And then they said, okay, well, we're only going to ship and move our own mm-hmm. oil. And yeah. the feds had to step in and say, uh, h- hold on, guys. Uh, you no, know, you have to actually be a common carrier. You can't be both the carrier and the seller. Are we running into that with Amazon? Absolutely. We're running into that with Amazon and Apple and Google and Facebook, all of them. And monopolies have for, forces of network effect that were unimaginable in 1888 or, you know, whenever Standard Oil and Rockefeller and all those guys like, you know, if, if you if you go read history, yes, there were serious issues with, you know, the steel mills, the railroads, the banks monopolizing things in the United States. Right. Then you fast forward a little bit. Then. I think um, I believe AT&T has been broken up five times in the last hundred years. And 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 none of those times have ever really been successful. And um, and now now we have these issues like it it does worry me, quite honestly. And and I, I have a front row seat to some of this because, for example, you know, I wrote the book on Google advertising and I have. I have watched that whole world evolve from its inception and, you know, Google, um, well, numerous times in history, Google's gone on shooting sprees where they just assassinated thousands of advertisers that they didn't like Mm. Google like you're shut down your band. I know tons of companies that literally just went bankrupt because Google shut their traffic down content creators. Um, Content creators on YouTube. They're uh, yeah, they're, they're doing that too, right? There's the whole free speech issues, which we don't have time for. But I'm just talking about, <laughs> I'm just talking about how, how, um, how they treat advertisers. And Google, like, okay, if you're a Google advertiser, um, if a Google sales rep is, if their lips are moving, they're probably lying. Okay? And they, and they don't even necessarily know it because – they, they go to their training classes and they're indoctrinated. Google wants all Google advertising to just run on their AI. They don't want human beings sitting there having complete control of all the switches and dials and everything. They want the AI to do it all. And they're heavily, heavily, heavily incentivized to tell all the advertisers. So you'll get an email from a Google rep and they'll say, hey, we were looking at your Google account. We saw some really serious mistakes. They're costing you serious money. And the person will commonly believe them because Google has a very good brand and they're very trusted. And the advertiser just gets completely hosed. Um, They may know it. They may not. It depends on how sharp they are. But like if I had a dollar for everybody who ever told me, yeah, you know, a Google rep called me and they made a suggestion and like I lost $25,000, like, man, like I'd have a lot more money. 
And, and so they have, they have monopoly power over advertising. They don't care about their advertisers. They're just like walking ATM machines, essentially. Um, and like they're evil, you know, the don't be evil thing. Oh, Oh God. Yeah. I have a Google Skynet. Yeah. They're they're They are evil. Okay. <laughs> and Facebook isn't any better. I don't really know about no, Apple. I think no. Apple, like Apple kind of cloaks them. The difference between the difference between Apple and Google though, is Apple sells products to customers with Google. The customer is the product. Yes. Right. And that's a big yep. difference. Yeah. So in general, Apple benefits by keeping its consumers satisfied and protected. So that's why they're big on privacy. Mm-hmm. Well, it works for them. They don't make money selling information so they can use it as a competitive advantage. Google obviously is not concerned about privacy. Quite the opposite. <laughs> why? Because the advertisers are their customer, right. not the users. The users are pawns. Facebook, even worse. And I actually did have a tangible way to bring this into the conversation because I feel like this is the 80-20 rule running a Yes. You have Google, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Apple, the YouTube. These are the, um, as you put it, the fractal. They're the 80-20, They're the 1% who is swinging 50 plus percent of the market or whatever. Oh yeah. It's even more extreme than that because so 80, 20 is, is the regular frictioned brick and mortar world. That's the numbers for that world. Okay. The internet is more like 90, 10 or 95, five literally. Okay. So, so, you know, 80, 20 squared, 4% controls 60%, 64%, 80, 20 cubed, 1% controls 50%. Well, well with, with, uh, on the internet, it's more like 1% controls 80%, 1% controls 70%. Right. Okay. And so that is how it stacks up. So I am concerned and you have, you do have network effects, um, uh, that that feed all this. Now there is a corollary that I think comes into play. I believe that all of these platforms are actually more fragile than they appear. Okay, I think Google is more vulnerable than people think they are. I so I have a prediction. I predict in the next two years, one of the four major players will be down for 12 hours due to a hack, a data breach, something breaking. Well, I think Facebook's already dying. Uh, honestly, Facebook's in trouble right now. Um, they've got their, their black eyes. People are leaving the pro, um, platform like crazy. And most importantly, young people are not on Facebook. So they have a dying customer base. That that shows a rod at the center. There already is a It could be. People are flocking on Instagram and Facebook has been sneakily trying to hang on to that, you know, people not knowing because they're ill-informed. I'm leaving Facebook. I'll go on Instagram. <laughs> You're still on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that, I think, is happening. They're hollowed out. Uh, Google, I think Google, I don't know. They may be playing it out a little bit. I feel like Amazon is a bigger threat than Google now. And the reason is that Google kept doing moonshot after moonshot after moonshot. And a lot of their stuff is just hackery. Google Plus, they've never really had mobile. If they didn't have Android, Google would be in dire straits right now. That's probably true. But they have Android. Um, <laughs> it's a big they deal. Do. And, and then Apple, Apple's up in the air. I, I mean, they're not going to go away soon because they've got you know a few hundred billion dollars in cash. Yeah. So they can ride that for a while. So I, I'm not sure. And Microsoft is ascending. So it's interesting. You're talking about the hacks. We've already seen some of that go down. I could see Facebook definitely getting hacked. So I, you know, I, I think, I think there's a, there's a yin to the yang. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, we, we have, we have very significant issues with, you know, censorship and, oh, and look, if, if, if the people that are running these platforms, you know, if they, if they just want to tip the scales just a little bit to the right or to the left or affect right. an election, like they can do that with impunity. I don't know how anybody could possibly 
oversee that. I think the the only thing that could happen is somebody could do a um uh oh what's the what's a uh, Snowden? There could be an Edward Snowden of Google or an Edward Snowden of Facebook who like flees somewhere and then starts telling everybody, Hey, you know, we would have these committee meetings and somebody would decide who was going to be elected that, that could, that could come out. But of course, well, they've already had some of that with like James Damore. Yeah. A little, um, he came, came out, uh, you know, talking about it and he was pretty much pilloried throughout the tech world. Yeah. And I, the guy probably won't find any work anywhere except for intellectual dark web stuff. (laughs) Um, well, he'll certainly have a job. And, I, I don't, I don't worry about him having a job. I mean, he'll, somebody will want to hire him, but, but the larger, the larger point would still be, you know, can, uh, can public opinion or some force like keep these guys in check? And, and I'm not really sure they can. I mean, you know, these, well, these people certainly aren't conservatives, <laughs> 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 no, they're not. And it, it, it is sort of a reverse because um, it, it used to be the conservatives were pretty bad about free speech, you know, wanting to censor lyrics, censor this, yep. censor that. And it, everything's upside down and bent backward anymore. The pendulum has swung the other way. But in such a world with a stack deck, one of the big questions is how do you find the levers within the levers to, to shift, you know, to make the move? I'm going to, you know, of course, make it about myself because I always do. I'm in an industry, it's called podcasting, and there are 650,000 podcasts. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's 90,000 active. So there, woof, I've knocked the market down by uh, 80% right off the top. Yep. And, but how does one work within said industries? It could be podcasting, it could be something else. How do you find those levers that those particular ones to turn to get on that 20% side versus the 80? Well, so the good news is, is that the principle of be number one in a growing market applies to podcasting, just like it applies anywhere else. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where is there an unmet need in a growing market? Do a podcast about that. Now, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be successful, but at least if you actually are the first mover, number one in a growing segment, you have the best possible chances. And and then certainly there's going to be these intangible factors like, you know, well, are you really a celebrity type personality? Are people going to like you? And And then there's, well, who do you get? Like, well, if you can get a very handful of influential people. So you you would find with most podcasts that most of their listeners came from having one show that hit the ball out of the park, right? There's that 95.5 thing. It's like, well, okay, well, you only need 5% of this to be really super amazing. And so this is true of any market. And, and so you have to get really good at finding out, okay, where is there a market that has a bleeding neck that nobody is addressing? Right. I want to talk about bleeding neck. That's <laughs> one of my favorite terms you, you throw yes. around. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. And I bring up podcasting too, because you're a podcast. I am. I have an evolution 2.0 podcast, which there's hardly any evolution podcast and certainly nobody doing what I'm doing. So it's very small, but it is, it's growing and it is a star business, it, you know, um, so it does meet the criteria and well, I do have some very interesting guests. So, well, you're niche down and again, we're getting in, it's so fun talking to you so close to Christopher because, you know, he's coming up from, he's a irascible <laughs> guy and, oh, he's, he's I love the word line. irascible. It's one of my favorite words. Well, it's one of the, it's not quite an automatopoeia, but it it just you can visualize it. My other favorite one is bludgeon. <laughs> oh, and defenestrate. But anyway, yes, <laughs> defenestration is also fantastic. And debauchery. <laughs> yeah, what's so sad is um, 
somebody was talking about fenestration. I was like, oh, windows. And the only reason I knew it is because defenestration. <laughs> Leave it to me that I know throwing people out a window. So, oh, you must be talking about windows on the house. <laughs> so, of course, I'm into a bleeding neck, too. <laughs> but <laughs> where I'm going with it is category creation seems to just line up so perfectly with 8020. Mm-hmm. And ironically, the numbers that he spit out is every category first mover or whatever, like Uber, et cetera, 76% is the average. Yep. That's just pretty close yeah, to 80. That's, that's about right. That's about right. Yep. So now moving to uh, another area you offer in your book and I, later on, I hope you'll pitch it and, you know, talk about, it, cause I know you um, sell the book through yes. your site for a very yes. good deal. And this actually came out of your book ultimately the uh, marketing DNA test. Yes. I created this because, well, part of why I failed as a sales guy was my marketing and sales personality was a poor fit for that job. And as far as I know, there hasn't been a test you could take to figure out how does this person naturally sell? Which if you stop and think about it, like, well, why doesn't this exist? And so, and, and, and when I started working on this, I had consulted with hundreds and hundreds of sales and marketing people. And I had seen all these different personalities. I, I knew people who I call hostage negotiators and you can throw them into any situation and they could just walk out with the order or bring home the hostages or whatever. And they probably can't even remember what they said, but they're just amazing under fire. Okay. Hmm. And usually that person they send you an email with no subject line because they're such terrible writers, <laughs> right? Okay. And then you have a, a different kind of person. They could never do hostage negotiation, but they could sit in their cave for four months and they could craft sales letters, autoresponders, copywriting, product launch sequences. And then on the appointed day, they press send and all this stuff comes out and then like all these orders start coming in and they never went and talked to anybody. Right. And that person sells completely differently than the hostage negotiator, you know, and then you got a guy who's like numbers and graphs and spreadsheets and proof and analytics and everything. And then you have a person who gets up in front of an auditorium full of people and makes you cry. These are all completely different sales and marketing personalities. And so I said, I need, it was actually inspired by the Colby test. The Colby test is so good at predicting how people function in a work environment that strategic coach puts your Colby score on your name tag. And I said, I need a Colby score for marketing and sales. And so I created it. It's called the marketing DNA test, marketingdnatest.com. And my, my book, 8020 sales and marketing has a back door so that you don't have to pay $37. It comes with a book. Um, and so, so I'm looking at yours. Okay. And yours. I'm a glutton for punishment. You say you're, you're a, you're a <laughs> five, six, two, seven. And the real key to the test is underneath the colored bars that show you your numbers. It, it says, okay, this says Eric is very strong on empathy and he's moderately strong on analytics and alchemy. Okay. And so in, and Eric dislikes images and recorded. So let me tell you what this means. So there are the, the marketing DNA test says there are eight characteristics that define how a person sells. Producer means they, they sell based on, this is reliable, it follows the steps, it obeys the rules, it's predictable, and they sell that. They sell predictability. An alchemist sells new, exciting, innovative, different. It's almost the opposite of producer, okay? Then there's live and recorded. There's people who sell live, on the spot, on the firing line. There's people who they want to meticulously plan it out and sketch. This is like the difference between salespeople and marketers. Salespeople are usually live. Marketers are usually recorded. Okay. All right. Then you have images and words. I think that's fairly 
self-explanatory? Do they sell with pictures or with stories? Then you have empathy versus analytics. Do they pluck your heartstrings or do they try to give you facts? None of these is better or worse than any other, except for the particular job that you want somebody to do. Do you want a copywriter? Then you need a certain marketing DNA score for a copywriter. Do you need a, a, a negoti hostage negotiator? You need a different score for that. Do you need a video producer? That's a different person. Do you need somebody with that's going to like go to, um, you know, investment bankers and show them spreadsheets and stuff. That's so, so here's what this says about you. This says that you're, you're very emotionally connected to people and you lead by understanding what people are thinking and feeling and sensing. And you resonate with that. This says you you like analytical information and you like creating new things. And the combination of empathy, analytics, and alchemists defines where and how you best sell. You best sell by, by being able to connect with people emotionally, deliver factual information, and create something new with it. That's how you sell. Okay. And then there's two things you don't like. You don't sell with pictures and you don't like to sit there and meticulously plan. You and I are doing a live interview, right? And you're not, you're not stopping every five minutes going, Oh, let's say that a different way. No, like you're just plowing through it. You're not sitting on a keyboard. So this, so this, so here's the description of you. You possess the powerful and rather unusual combination of being able to both analyze and empathize. Yes, you understand numbers, facts, data, and proof, but you also understand human beings. You can explain things to people. You can explain people to other people. You can connect people with things. Where others only see data, you see stories, trends, and movements. You bridge the gap between raging emotions and hard facts. You do well in technical sales. You have a knack for the rigors of direct marketing, and you have no problem with the idea that the court of last resort, that the final answer is what customers choose to buy. You have an endless curiosity about what makes people tick, and you're fascinated by models of human behavior. You could even become a psychoanalysis junkie. Your sense of human engineering is keen. You're a stabilizing force in tumultuous situations. How accurate is that? Well, I'm a podcaster, and I interview people. Yep. I think maybe I'm in the right room. And you talk about things like network effect and Elon Musk and first mover. And <laughs> like you talk about very conceptual things. And we were talking about how, oh, yeah, we talk about evolution and we talk about, you know, like all of these, <laughs> you know, sort of intellectual topics. Right. And then and then and then the second one is you understand the creative use of emotional power. For you, the power of marketing is in the hidden conversation inside the customer's head, which you not only discern, but take to a new level. You understand how to harness their inner fantasies and secret desires to a level that's almost psychic and sometimes a little bit scary. Hmm. It's interesting. One thing that does describe me, at least especially when I first meet people, but the more I know them, the worse I am. Oh, okay. So that's a, I've never understood that I've talked to a couple psychologists about it, et cetera, in interviews. But yeah, for some reason, when I first meet somebody, I can, it's like I have a lot of clarity in the freshness. Okay. But the more I get to know them or get emotionally invested, I guess, maybe that's it. Maybe it just clouds my vision or, or my own perceptions and emotions and baggage start to color the relationship and I get dumber all the time. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I have a diagnosis about that, but, um, you know, I can totally see why. Uh, a podcast where you kind of go into intellectual areas would make perfect sense for you. And it's audio, not visual. So that makes sense. And you record them live, even though the thing is recorded and distributed later, you, you do your work live in the moment. So there you go. So, so, you know, you, you should, you should not be a guy who, you know, has to put together visual presentations and you're especially not a guy who should have to sit there and obsess uh, insanely about it. And, um, and, you know, so when you put a person in the right situation, like I had a, I had a computer programmer who took this thing and it said he should be a copywriter. 
in 18 months later, he was making $100,000 a year as a copywriter and he had quit his computer programming job. Well, if the marketing DNA test is telling you that you shouldn't be selling what you're selling, then go find a different business or a different job or a different product or a different way to sell it. Because there's not one way to sell. And I guess where, a lot of where I'm coming from was when I was an, a sales guy and I was really struggling, I would listen to Zig Ziglar tapes and Tommy Hopkins tapes and like all these kind of sales trainers. And they were all geared at, to, to a certain kind of personality, which was different than mine. And I didn't, I didn't understand how I should sell. Now I do. The way I sell best is through books. And emails. You're a yes. copywriter from hell. Yes. Interestingly, using this um, tool here, it seems like it would be useful, um, useful for building a team. Yes. For example, my personality and your personality probably gel really mm-hmm. well because you're a meticulous copywriter and I don't even like to do introductions. On <laughs> yep. So it's a, it, it is a, a different situation. So would you say this is a good tool for building a group yes. of people who are going to work together and not even necessarily just salespeople, but building teams? As right. A whole? So what you want is you want people on your team who collectively are strong in all eight. Okay, so you're not very good at recorded. You're good at live. So one of, and you're not very good at images. Well, the first team member you should probably be paired up with is a person who's good at images and good at um, recording or scripting marketing rather than doing it live so that like, your website or your sales funnels or your sales sequences could all be neatly choreographed. And for people who are visually oriented that they get the proof and the examples that they need to convince them because people tend to buy the same way they sell words. People buy work through stories and images. People buy through pictures and empathy people buy through empathy and analytics people buy analytically. And so, and so if, if your audience covers a broad spectrum, which most do, you know, most products aren't really particular to one of these types, then you need all types. So most sales, like a real sales team, they need a hostage negotiator. They need a guy who sits in his cave for four months and writes emails and copy. They need a video editor. They need somebody that can put together numbers and facts and proof and all that stuff. And, and if you can do all that, you have a well-rounded, we, we even have a category that I call a chameleon, which is a person who's all fives. They're right down the middle. Mm. And, and what I find with teams is teams are usually driven by the most eccentric person and they're held together by the most average person. Mm, that's a, kind of like the uh, C, uh, um, CEO, COO conundrum where you have like a example, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook always come to mind where you have Steve Jobs, who's an innovator, he's visual and he's out there and it's. Tim Cook is very much to keep the trains running on time, very, you know, focused and grounded. Yes. So so I'm, I am going to guess that Tim Cook is a chameleon. If he took this, he would be all fives down the center and that Steve Jobs was, well, wildly super high images. Well, I, I would have a certainly high alchemist. No, no question about, and I'm not sure about the other ones, but Steve would probably, he'd probably, probably be a 10 on some of these. Okay. Yeah. And, and super eccentric. And, and so now the, the ones, the ones that are eccentric, like I have a lot of, in my coaching groups, I tend like Elon Musk is a lot like him, actually as a, player. yeah. And they, and they, they feel like misfits and freaks in the world because mm-hmm. like nobody understands it, but they're so good at certain things. Like, Oh my goodness. Like this guy, like a, I, I know people, they're 10 empathy and 10 live that, that is a hostage mm. negotiator. 
man, they can just like, I bet Bill Clinton would be a 10 live and a 10 empathy. Like just like you, you didn't so much catch this on TV, but people I know who, who knew him personally or were in the room with him, they'd go, he would come and shake your hand and he just had this radiant magnetism. He was an unforgettable person. And that was people. Who right. Even him. people. Well, <laughs> well, you know what? Um, he, I, I go to, I used to go to Willow Creek Church a long time ago, biggest church in Chicago, and Bill Clinton came. Our pastor was his chaplain to the chagrin of most of the members like this. This was like oil and water. <laughs> and 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 Bill, the pastor, he he would give speeches. Sometimes he goes, he go, I know you don't like that guy, but we're Christians and we're supposed to love our enemies and you don't get to. And he so he brought Clinton in. And he's in, he, he had a habit of doing things like this. He would do stuff that really stretched the congregation and he had Clinton. So he's a contrarian. Yeah. And, 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 and like Pete. And so I watched this thing and, you know, and he's interviewing Bill Clinton and they're talking about all this stuff and I'm sitting there. I like this guy. I like, no, I hate this guy. I like this guy. Uh, no, wait a minute. I hate this guy. It was like this really weird experience listening to this interview because Bill Clinton could dial into an audience so effectively. I'm certain he's like a 10 empathy, 10 live off the charts. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and so you, you have people with these superpowers and, and then they have these weaknesses. Look, if you got superpowers, man, you got big, huge blind spots, right? Just go read the book about Steve Jobs, right? So you have to, oh, you have yeah. to balance out. You need gravity. Yeah, right. So yes, this absolutely tells you how to build a team, and you know, even just distributing the tasks you have between your team members. Hey, man, she's a words. She is a wordsmith par excellence. Don't give it to the sales guy. Give it to her. That's awesome. I, and I love the um, the 360 view of putting together. Um, you, you mentioned hostage, <laughs> uh, hostage negotiator, which is so funny because I have Chris Voss <laughs> coming on next week. All right. <laughs> and that that's his superpower, quite literally. But um, – it really makes sense that you would need the copywriter to be the original outreach and yeah. follow up kind of. And then you have the hostage negotiator. And another thing you brought up, I almost want to close out with this in your book. You talked about the principle of your product line um, that people ignore the high end. Oh, right. And I kind of wonder if you need all these personalities or all, all these types in order to get the full spectrum of what you are trying to accomplish or, or sell you, you know, rather than this narrow band, having the upper band and the lower band, because I imagine, I think you keep bringing up a $5,000 yeah. espresso machine. I don't think I'm going to buy that off your copy. I probably want to talk to somebody. Very possibly. Yes. Right. Right. Like, well, yeah, there's, well, it's true. There, there are certain kinds of products or certain kinds of price points where a copywriter could do, hundred percent of the job. And, and there are certain, um, price points and, and products where a salesperson would be absolutely lousy. And then you can completely flip that, right? You have others where a salesperson would absolutely be perfect and a copywriter would suck. Right. And so, um, and it just goes to show you, there's a lot of ways to be successful and it's really about, that niche it's being number one in a growing market well like however you want to define the market you know be the number one alchemist on your sales team and and then take take the jobs in the in the projects that demand an alchemist and like if you're an alchemist and you're selling a producer product you're probably going to jump off a building right and vice versa <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Like if you make me record long introductions, I'll that's be right. this business quickly. So, and it's cool. There's, there's a lot of ways to be successful and this is a, a way to liberate people from, you know, their conceptions of how it 
should be. Well, now on that note, because I've definitely eaten a lot of your time, how about you tell people where they can get your <laughs> book? Because we barely scratched the surface. We spent a lot of time. The book 8020 Sales and Marketing is at, if you go to sell8020.com, S-E-L-L-8020.com, it'll take you right to an offer. Seven bucks, including shipping, will ship you the book. And it'll it'll get you some video bonuses that you don't get if you just buy the book on Amazon. And it, I think you should not just listen to what I say. You should watch what I do. I've built a sales funnel. Uh, I've built follow-up sequences and videos and upsell offers. Watch the choreography of what happens. Watch how we treat you as an email subscriber. Watch what happens next, 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 next. I have a a marketing and nurturing sequence that will run at least five years and it'll, it'll be a journey and you can learn a great deal from it and you can probably steal some ideas. So, um, sell 8020.com. It'll redirect you to the specific page on our website where we sell that $14 international. And, um, it, if you understand 8020 the way I explain it, it will change the way you see the entire world. And tons of things will suddenly snap into place, be much simpler. You'll know what to do in different situations. And and you can take the marketing DNA test for free instead of paying 37 bucks. So it's a pretty good deal. And on that note, he's right. Um, you will visualize things that you won't even expect. For example, in running... Mm. Because I'm a runner, there's an 80-20 principle there. And I thought about that, and I was like, hmm, how would that break down? Well, essentially, you're supposed to do 80% of your workouts at a very easy pace, and 20% of it is focused. Well, you can break that down again fractally, because a focused workout would be a thing like intervals. Intervals are running very hard, and then having a a break in between. So now, again, we've got the 80-20. Of course, yes. Four per... So even in so athletics, if four percent like of that. your workout, you're at 150 beats a minute, then you got your happy juice, right? Exactly. Good. Well, that doesn't take very long. So, good. Well, this has been fun. We should do it again. Yes. Well, thank you so. We might have to. With That's the a evolution. whole different subject. So <laughs> I'd be happy to talk about that. Thanks for having Thanks so me. Much for coming it's on. an honor. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com, and I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing... Here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that really scares me. Yeah, I had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, Or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com.